The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. This is the Word of God. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. How do you feel about silence? I suspect your answer is, it depends. Context matters. Sometimes silence is just what we needed. It's a respite from demands and expectations, from social requirements or questions. And in those moments, silence is golden. In other contexts, silence can be quite unsettling. Waiting on news, anticipating an answer, awkward silence, or the silence of uncertainty. At these times, silence is not golden. And at, it, at its worst, silence can make us feel alone, neglected, or even abandoned. Silence implies there's nothing happening. And depending on the context, that may be what we want. Or it may be excruciating to bear. The 400 years between Malachi and John the Baptist are sometimes called the silent years. The Old Testament ends as the prophet tells God's people about a day in which God will rescue and restore them once and for all. And then silence. Over the next 400 years, while judgment prophecies like Daniel 8.14 would be fulfilled, no new revelation from God would come. After hundreds of years of warnings, pleadings, and promises through the lips of his prophets, God went silent. The promises of hope, the promises of a future still lingered. But with respect to God's own voice in redemptive history, things got eerily quiet. Even John the Baptist, the last of the old covenant prophets, did not know where the fulfillment of these promises would come from. He knew by faith that God would keep his word. God had told him to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. Yet here he acknowledges in verses 31 and 33, I myself did not know him. The Old Testament was sufficient 
to show us our sin, to show people the need for redemption. It's sufficient to show God's promises of salvation. In fact, the Old Testament saints were saved by believing God's promises of salvation, the same way we're saved. The Old Testament also gave lots of little details about this Messiah who was to come. But the Old Testament does not reveal Christ. You cannot look to the Old Testament to see Christ, the Savior, revealed to his people. God revealed himself in many and diverse ways to this point. And he had promised to reveal himself to them in salvation. But up to this point, he hadn't done it. John the Baptist doesn't know what that salvation will look like. By faith, he's been prepared by God for this moment, and he's been preparing the moment for God, so to speak. Remember the beginning of this gospel, how it describes Jesus' coming in terms of revelation. So when God reveals himself in this way, when salvation finally comes on the scene, John knows it, or rather, he knows him. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he. This moment of John's spiritual exuberance breaks 400 years of silence, but it's not John's speech that breaks the silence. It's the entrance of Jesus into his public ministry. God revealing himself through the incarnation of Jesus speaks to his people again, fulfilling the promise to reveal himself in salvation. He sent his son to take away the sin of the world. And what John sees in Jesus, he describes with two titles. Lamb of God, verse 29, and Son of God, verse 34. Let's consider Son of God first, as that's the title he uses at the end of the book when he says, these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John's words about Jesus here are nearly identical to the ones he just used with the Sanhedrin's investigatory investigatory committee in the last passage. Jesus, this man, is the one to whom John's own ministry points. This man is the authority upon which John baptizes. This man is the one for whom he's been preparing the way through preaching and baptism. This is the Son of God. And until now, John did not know him. Now, this will be a theme throughout Jesus' ministry. In the prologue, several verses ago, John told us that the world, even though Jesus made it, did not know him. And here it's John who twice says, I did not know him. And the meaning is the same. Remember, John is his own cousin. He certainly knew Jesus Prior to this moment, he knew him as the son of Joseph and Mary. His point is that only now did he see him for who he really was, the son of God. In some ways, it's easy to see Christ, isn't it? Bibles are everywhere. 
the stories of the Gospels are in common parlance. People are made in Christ's image with Christ's law written on their hearts. Even unbelieving consciences testify to right and wrong and so reflect something of Christ. Believers have much more. We have the spirit of Christ in us. We know it when we see that spirit at work in ourselves and others, that it is Christ at work. But in another way, it's not so easy to see Christ. In fact, it's impossible. John had been around Jesus of Nazareth before now, but he had not seen Christ. Lots of people hear those Bible stories. They see Christ-like deeds or even participate in religious service and activities, yet they do not see Christ. So what does it take? How did John see Christ? Verse 32, and John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the son of God. See, for John, it took a work of the Holy Spirit. And without this work, no one can truly see the Son of God. John describes the Spirit as descending like a dove and remaining on Jesus. Other figures in redemptive history have had temporary experience of the Spirit's presence on them. Scripture describes the Spirit of the Lord rushing upon David. Of course, it also describes the Spirit of the Lord being taken away from Saul. And what John had been told was the one on whom the Spirit descends and remains on Jesus, that is the sign of God's Messiah. And though the gospel writer does not record it here, we know from the other three gospels that when John baptized Jesus, the Father's voice also descended from heaven. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. In that moment, the triune God descending, Jesus descending in incarnation to earth, the spirit descending to earth like a dove, the voice of God coming down from the heavens, God himself in the fullness of God descending to be among us. How can anyone see Christ for who he is? God must descend. God must reveal him. And he does this, he says, through the presence and the power and the testimony of the Holy Spirit. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is promised to bring and of which the New Testament speaks. That the Holy Spirit descends on people from heaven. The presence and the testimony of the Holy Spirit in a person's life enables them to see Christ. And it's also effective for salvation and for Christ-likeness. It's with regards to salvation that we turn to John's other messianic title, the Lamb of God, in verse 29. Now, when we hear this title, we think of sacrifice. We absolutely should. Jesus is the once-for-all Passover lamb who gives his life to save his peoples. But thinking about this title in John's context requires that we start with another image. 
John speaks after 400 years of silence. And the anticipation for all things end times is palpable. The day of the Lord for which God's people were hearing about for hundreds of years. Their anticipation for this is palpable. Lamb of God was not first a reference to sacrifice in John's day. But to apocalypse to the day of the Lord. In many pre-Christian Jewish texts, the concept of this lamb was the conquering in times lamb, not just the sacrificial one. That's why in the book of Revelation, the most in times book in the New Testament, the same author John will reference the lamb 29 times. Lamb is connected with the consummation of all things. And so when John applies this title to Jesus, he's making an unambiguous statement for his audience that this is the one to whom all the prophecies pointed. This is the Lamb of God, the one who will usher in the rule of God and the reign of peace for his people. Now, of course, this doesn't exclude the sacrificial meaning from the title. I think that's why God used the image the whole time. Go back to Genesis, when God provided a ram as a replacement for Isaac on the faithful Abraham's altar. Think about that situation in New Testament language. By his faith, God counted Abraham righteous and revealed himself in salvation by providing a lamb. But the lamb had to be slain because the wages of sin is death. Fast forward to the Passover, the final horrific plague against the unrepentant Pharaoh and his people where God sends a spirit of death to every firstborn child in Egypt. Think of that in New Testament language. God brought death because the wages of sin is death. And God offered a way out for those who by faith followed his instructions. A lamb was to be slain and its blood spread on the doorposts and by this a household would be spared. By faith, God provides a substitute for each household. By faith and by the blood of an innocent lamb, they could be saved from death. Yet in both of these cases, God is only saving human life. These are pictures of what's required to save a human soul, but neither event is enough to actually save them. Quadruped lambs cannot save human souls. A life for a life requires human life. Only the Lamb of God, a man, as John points out in verse 30, the only addition he makes to his comment to the Sanhedrin's committee, is the word man. This is the man of whom I was speaking. A life for a life requires human life. Only a man can take away the sins of the world. Now I do note John again uses that word world. And again he uses it the same way. Not just to mean everything that was made. To emphasize the world's rebellion against God. He's not using the word exhaustively to indicate all of the people who were ever in the world. He's using it to describe a category 
A group of people who were made and were in rebellion against their maker. What John's referring to is one aspect of salvation called expiation. Kids, that's a good theology word to learn. Expiation. When we say the wages of sin is death, what we mean is that when we sin, what we must receive in return for that sin is death. We have an obligation to receive death because our sin demands it. If I tell you that for $5, I'll give you a box of cookies and you give me $5, I owe you a box of cookies, don't I? The only way I can expiate that debt is by giving you a box of cookies or something else that you agree satisfies the debt. And when sin is the wage and death is the debt, nothing can satisfy that obligation except death. The death of the sinner or another in his place. In this context, scripture applies the sacrificial lamb concept to Jesus. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. One from among us who though we deserved death took that death that was not his own on our behalf. Peter unpacks this for us in a couple of verses we covered a few months ago. He said, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb that is without blemish or spot. Life for a life, you can't use silver and gold to expiate the death that is owed for sin. There must be death, the death of a man. And this, he says, is that man, the lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Jesus is the answer to the sin problem. By his blood, his death, he will take away sin for all from the world who believe in him. These people from the world are in rebellion against their creator. They're no different than anyone else in the world, except that when they see him as he is and trust in him by faith, They will be saved. So then we're back to the first question. How do they see him? And it's the same as John. By the Holy Spirit testifying to them that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. It's absolutely the same for everyone who encounters Jesus. Even John, who goes from not knowing him to absolutely settled and testifying, this is the Christ. One moment, he does not really know him. The next, he bears witness to his identity in front of others before the world. Just as we must also do before many who ask and many more who do not. John is sure because of the work of the Spirit. 
That is the only way we can ever be sure. It is the only way any of us can come to know Christ. Those names represented on the board in the hallway. That is what we are praying for. They need to see Christ and therefore they need the spirit of God to fall from heaven and show Christ to them. That's what happened for all of us who believe. And our experience of Christ through the Spirit, as we sang masterfully in the hymn we just sang, is not just a one-time thing. If it were, if the Spirit showed us Christ once, we would have hope for salvation, but little holiness or joy in this life. If the Spirit shows us Christ in salvation, we see Christ as Savior, we trust in him, and we have nothing to fear on the day of judgment. But if the Spirit only shows us Christ in salvation, we're going to have a pretty miserable slog between now and then. Thankfully, the same Spirit who reveals Christ in salvation reveals Christ continually in us for holiness. The Spirit remained on him. This means that those around us, those we're praying for, those we don't even know, and those we do know, have the opportunity by the same Spirit to see Christ in us. This is the same spirit, the helper that Jesus sends us after his ascension. The spirit who reveals Christ, the spirit who remained on Christ is the spirit sent to us. And so others ought to be able to see Christ through this spirit in us. The compliment all of us should long to receive is that when someone looks at us, even in a moment, they see Christ. And for that to happen, the Spirit has to work in them to give them the eyes of faith to see, but also in us, continually working in us, showing us Christ day after day. It's when we see Christ that we can see our sin as sin and repent of it. Kids, you'll hear me say many times, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not sin. It's repentance. Christians still sin. You all sin. I sin sometimes against one another and always against God, as you talked about in Sunday school this morning. When the Spirit is showing us Christ, we can see how ugly and evil that sin is. And then the Spirit gives us the power to repent of that sin. The power to apologize to one another and to mean it. And the power to receive that apology and to extend forgiveness. When the Spirit shows us Christ, amazing things happen happen. We know that when the Spirit showing us Christ teaches us faith for salvation, and that's amazing. But do we remember that it's the Spirit showing us Christ who teaches us the humility of repentance, and the Spirit showing us Christ who teaches us holiness for faithful and joyful living. But even 
for the Christian, Christ is not always easy to see. Difficult circumstances can make it hard to see Christ, can't they? Holiness and joyful living can be obscured by difficult circumstances and pain and tragedy. And yet, haven't we learned how they can also illuminate Christ? From Peter and from Micah, isn't the Spirit teaching us that even the most difficult circumstances provide a canvas on which this bright light of God and the colors of his love bring hope and joy even in the darkest of times? It's hard to see Christ when our progress in holiness seems so slow. It's hard to see Christ when we're battling with the same old sin, the one that got us last week and last month and last year. It's hard to see Christ when our relationships are marred by the same old fight we always have and the required repetition of raising children of living in relationships with other sinners. All of this can obscure holiness and joyful living. They can make it harder for us to see Christ. And yet the Holy Spirit, the helper sent to us, is always illuminating Christ for us, even in those circumstances. We can persevere over any sin. Whatever sin you think has you trapped, you can persevere over any sin. How do I know? Because the Spirit of God is not weaker than any sin. We can build God-honoring and joyful marriages because our difficulties are crucible, not combat. And the Spirit of God can use them to refine each of us individually and both of us together. We can persevere in the hard work of raising God-fearing children and growing into God-fearing adults, which is not easy. But we can persevere because the Spirit shows us Christ and gives us growth by grace. And in all of this, and please don't think this sounds trivial, in all of this, We can find joy because what else can be found when you are looking at the face of Christ? When the Spirit illuminates to us the face of Christ, mustn't everything else become increasingly dim? What God worked for us in salvation through the revelation of Christ to us by the Spirit, he continues to work in us day after day. Christian, don't think the Spirit's work is done in you. Hang in there. Don't give up hope. Be encouraged even. Look, if it was up to you or I, we'd have great cause for concern. This would be a very different sermon. None of us can see Christ once or day by day with our own worldly eyes. The world sees him and does not know him. But the Holy Spirit of God is at work in you. 
He is testifying Christ to your hearts. He is giving you new eyes to see, just as he did with John the Baptist, who one moment did not know him, and the next testified, this is the Son of God. When John saw and heard the Spirit's testimony, he was convinced beyond any doubts that time when he did not know him was gone. And now by the Spirit of God, he sees him clearly. That is the same Spirit that is at work within you. Not just once, but every day illuminating Christ for you every day. That is the spirit that God has sent to you. Thanks be to God.